Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I don't know how many of you are fans of uh, Russian literature or the Russian novel. We have a course on the Russian novel at the King's College, and I was recently at one of, uh, actually playing a, a little concert at, at one of the loft apartments um, uh, that our students had, and um, I saw this stack of books that was about two feet high, and um, I said, uh, which classes are, is that for? And, and the students said, not classes, class. Uh, it is for my, my Russian literature class with uh, Professor Campbell. And as I scanned down through that stack, um, yesterday I began with three oughts. I had ought against Professor Campbell because there was one in there that was missing that I thought should have been there that I believe every Christian ought to leave, which is in a way a parable, I think, for the world in which we now find ourselves today. Uh, the novel is not well known. It's not by Tolstoy. It's not by Dostoevsky. It's called The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bukharov. And the beginning of the novel is situated in an open-air cafe in Moscow. And uh, there is a, a poet there whose nickname is Homeless. Um, there is a theater manager who is there. And they find themselves seated with a man who is mysteriously called simply Professor Voland, who is not Russian. He's an outsider. He is a visitor to, uh, to the nation. And they begin talking about um, the ridiculousness and absurdity of uh, traditional Christianity and Orthodox religion. And uh, Professor Voland strenuously objects, which takes the other two interlocutors somewhat off guard. And they're surprised that someone who is a distinguished visiting academic, they can't quite place his accent. It seems to be uh, from everywhere and yet nowhere at the same time. Um, they're surprised that this scholar would actually believe in the existence of God. And they said, well, you'll have to advance some kind of of demonstrable proof for us that God exists. And um, Professor Volon says, well, I assume that you have heard all of the traditional proofs for the existence of God. And so they have a conversation. Now, this is Russian literature, so actually all the proofs get uh, explained uh, in, in the novel. And they go through the five proofs of St. Thomas. And they consider... Um, Anselm's uh, ontological proof. And um, 
they consider Pascal's wager. And Professor Voland uh, says, you've missed one. And they said, which one? And he uh, replies with a wry smile, um, the existence of the devil is the strongest proof for the existence of God. Well, these two atheist Russian elites roar with laughter. And Voland looks at them and says, um, it's fine to laugh now, but mark my words. Just after, I think it's 6 o'clock p.m. tonight, uh, the, uh, one of the two of you um, will be dead. And uh, sure enough, a series of events uh, line up to where they're both standing on the platform of this uh, train station. And a black cat appears. And there is a, um, there's a, a scuffle and there's a distraction. And the train arrives and within minutes... One of the man's heads is seating on the uh, train platform, separated from his body. And Homeless uh, begins to have a nervous breakdown because he realizes that the devil is quite real and the devil was, in fact, Professor Voland, to whom they had been talking uh, just a few hours earlier. Yesterday in my chapel address here with the Page Lectures at Southeastern, we talked about um, re-inhabiting or reorienting our mindset from juxtaposing what I have seen Orthodox Christians try to portray the world as being as how it is today, which is this um, pitched battle between extreme secularism and the new atheism and people of faith. Uh, what I said was that my experience, uh, now having uh, lived for quite some time in New York City, is that it's, it's not so much that for most people as it is a, an age of profound credulousness and openness to all sorts of enchantments and mystical and transcendent explanations about things, with the exception being traditional Christianity. Anything but that. It reminds me of the uh, recent novel series by V.E. Schwab, called The Gathering of Shadows, in which there are four different parallel universes and four different cities of London. One city of London is dominated by black magic. One city of London is dominated by what's called red magic, which is sympathetic magic. One is dominated by white magic, and one is gray magic, which does not admit to the existence of things that are beyond. I think that picture is right because three of those four are very open to different kinds of interpretations. And so, meanwhile, the, the world around us 
is asking for, inviting various different kinds of supernatural and transcendental and mystical explanations of things, uh, we busy ourselves with trying to be uh, increasingly um, scientific and urbane and sophisticated, and there are advantages to that. But in the meantime, what happens to the people who attend our churches and go to our colleges and universities is that they have now succumbed to what the Italian philosopher Gianni Vattimo calls soft thought. In this world of, of great credulousness, where do traditional Christians stand? They may quietly say, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but they will do so quietly in the shadows, but what they will lead with is something along the lines of what I saw in a BuzzFeed video last year, which had a parade of young people aged 18 to 25, and the title of the video, you can go look it up, is I'm a Christian, but. I'm a Christian, but I believe in science. I'm a Christian, but I'm not hung up on homosexuality. I'm a Christian, but. And it's this series of caveats of I'm a Christian, but I'm really at the end of the day just like you. It's what Vatimo calls soft thought. Now, Vatimo himself is um, a very well-known figure on the European landscape, one of the towering figures of contemporary philosophy. Someone who famously said, I am a gay Catholic who welcomes the death of God. These are things that juxtapose quite easily inside his uh, own mind and belief. He also coined the Latin term credere di credere, which means it's a flipping an the Anselmian quotient of I believe in order to understand to simply say, I believe because I believe. It's suspended in midair with nothing to support it. And the reason why Vatimo thinks that is that he is essentially acceded to the dictum of Friedrich Nietzsche that there are no facts, there are only interpretations, there are only perspectives. So in light of that, we must couch everything that we say that we believe or that we think of in scare quotes, soft thought, or translated differently, uh, weak thought. Vatimo, however, recently was pushed back upon by a friend and another interlocutor, um, the late, uh, he died earlier this year, French immortal René Girard. Uh, for those of you that have never heard that name before, René Girard is one of those 
few figures um, in the modern world that achieved the French government's designation of the term immortal, which means his thought will be with us forever. We will never forget the contribution of René Girard. Girard was a professor emeritus at Stanford when he died, incredibly influential on the scene of modern philosophy, had a very uh, controversial and inventive explanation of what uh, the Christian gospel meant, and himself was a Christian convert. Girard engaged in a series of dialogues with Vatimo, and the English translation, when the book was published, didn't really capture the substance of their exchange. The best translation, I think, of this exchange between Girard the Christian and Vatimo the atheist Catholic was truth or weak faith. These are the options these two gentlemen agreed that are now available to us. We either believe a fully shaped Christian worldview or we accept the fact that mostly what we have to do is be cast in the frame of Sextus Empiricus, the great cynic who at least was honest enough to say at the end of the day, the best that we can say about anything is nothing at all. However, Girard, I think, made some headway with Vatimo uh, in this exchange, and here's how he did it. He asked Vatimo, as um, a, a gay person, as someone who considered himself a modern European, what are the deliverables, what are the values, what are the achievements of contemporary Europe that you appreciate and love? And there was a litany of them. Egalitarianism, the dignity of the individual, free markets, free speech, exchange of ideas, care for the poor, and charity. And what Gerard rather brilliantly shows, and what they come to kind of a common agreement on, is that actually all of those things that even an atheist, even a dissident like Vatimo loves, those things ultimately their origin began in the Hebrew Christian worldview. And so even if you won't back off on the notion of soft thought, it's got to be a little harder than soft, soft. Because there is actually a root that gave birth to these things that we would not want to lose in a world that faces the specter of new totalitarianisms 
and new calamities and our own apocalypses. And it reminded me of a book that I read growing up that I think is a metaphor for uh, the church today. And some people don't like this, but I actually think it's apt. How many of you read growing up or read to your, have read to your children Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree? All right. Okay, so that's pretty good, about 60% of you. For those of you that have never read it, uh, it's worth your time. It's a classic. Uh, Shel Silverstein uh, wrote this book about the relationship of a little boy with a beautiful leafy fruit-bearing tree. In the beginning of the book, the boy comes to the tree and all he wants to do is play. And the tree is so glad to be the environment in which he plays and lets his imagination grow wild and he swings on the branches and then the little boy goes away and the little boy starts to grow up. And he goes out into the world and he finds his way back to the tree and the tree is so excited to see him And the little boy says, I don't want to swing on the branches. I've grown past that phase, but I do want money. And the tree says, I don't have any money to give you, but I can give you fruit from my branches. And so the little boy picks all of the fruit off of the giving tree and goes and sells the apples for uh, money. Several years later, he comes back and the tree says, is delighted to see him again. And he says, I, I, I know you don't want to swing on my branches and, and, uh, you know, I'm not producing as many apples as I, as I used to. And the little boy says, well, I don't want any of those things now. What I want now is a boat to go see the rest of the world. And so the tree allows the little boy to chop off its branches and the little boy builds a boat and he sails around the world. Eventually, the boy comes back and he wants everything from the tree. And he builds a house. And so now the giving tree is just a stump. And the final scene of the book, I think, is a parable for us today. Now an old man the little boy comes back to the giving tree and the giving tree is excited to see him but he says, I, I have nothing left to give that you might want. But now the old man says, I don't want anything from you. I need a place to rest now. I simply need a place to sit down. And the little boy and the tree were happy once again. If I don't miss my guess, what we are seeing in our culture right now is a vast array of experiments against reality. And experiments against reality can last for a time. But experiments against reality are also 
is also an exhausting enterprise. Where will the church be when all of the experiments have played themselves out and exhausted themselves? Will there be the place to rest? That generative, gift-bearing Christian worldview and church that is there standing in this sea of threats to its own existence. In this exchange between Vatimo and, and Gerard, one of the things that came to my mind is Vatimo talks about how much he loves the, the care, the idea of care for the weak and the defenseless and the poor, is the fact that until the parable of the Good Samaritan, you did not even have anything like the concept of charity on the world stage. Never before the parable of the Good Samaritan was it ever said that you had an obligation to anybody outside of your tribe. When everyone is your brother, it's a complete game changer. That is the giving tree of Christianity. And it is the gift that keeps on giving and giving over and over from generation to generation. But what people expect to find when they actually arrive at the location of the church is not simply more arguments, is not simply an institutionalized structure, and not just a liturgy, as important as those things are. They actually expect to find a pre-modern world in which God actually speaks and shows, as Carl Henry said, stands and stays with his people in the midst of his people. What people want to see from us is a pillar of fire by day or by night and a pillar of cloud by day. I'm reminded of the uh, story about uh, John Wimber. And I know that this is not a charismatic, friendly crowd per se. But I think there is something to learn from this um, story of John Wimber's conversion. As, as many of you know, John Wimber eventually took over a Bible study that Larry Norman, who I'm writing a book about, have to put in a book promo, a Bible study that Larry Norman started called The Vineyard. It was a Bible study that Bob Dylan wound up coming to and getting converted. This is where Keith Green went to a Bible study when Keith Green was still a drug addict. Um, and eventually the Bible study got taken over by another pastor, and eventually John Wimber took it over. How did John Wimber become a Christian? John Wimber was a producer for the Righteous Brothers. He was a rock and roll record producer. And he was definitely involved in the world of rock and roll, which has three distinguishing characteristics. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? That is what rock and roll is. And uh, Wimber became a believer, um, quite surprisingly to himself and to, to others. And 
he began reading his Bible voraciously. And he got to the book of Acts after he had read the Gospels. Somebody told him to start with the Gospels. And he got to the book of Acts. And he began looking around and he was like, maybe I ought to go to one of these things called the church. Novel idea, right? Maybe I ought to be involved in this thing. And so he goes to the only church that he kind of knows of. He's, uh, you know, living in Hollywood. And so he goes to what is, what is uh, Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And he goes to, and he sits down in something very odd that people call a pew. And he watches the service unfold. And the, um, the invocation is offered up. And the hymns are sung, and the um, the offertory is taken, and the choir anthem is sung, and the sermon is delivered, and uh, the benediction is given at the end, and people stand up and they start walking out. And Wimber's looking around. And he bumps into someone who's an elder at the church. And uh, he said, are you new here? And he said, yes, this is my very first Sunday in church. And he said, the elder said, well, what did you think? And John Wimber said, I loved it. I loved every single thing about it. But he said, I, ha- I, w- I was wondering, is it over? And the elder said, what do you mean, the service? He's like, John Wimber's like, yeah, is it over? He's like, yeah, the, the, the service is over. People are going home now. And John Wimber said, huh, I just have one question. When do they do it? And the elder's like, what are you talking about? And John Wimber said, um, the stuff. When does the stuff happen? The other's like, I'm not following you. He's like, when do you, when do, you do the stuff? He's like, I've been reading the Bible. And like, when does the Bible stuff happen? And the elder said, I'm still not following you. And he said, the stuff in the Bible, the, the multiplication of the fishes and loaves and the, you know, healing of the blind and the laying of hands on the lame so that they take up their mat and walk. When does that stuff happen? And the elder said, oh, that stuff. Well, well, we talk about it. We believe in it. But we don't actually do it. And John Wimber said, I went away feeling so disappointed because when I was working for the devil, I did the devil's stuff. Now here is what I know about the high school students that I meet, Christian and non, and the college students I meet, and I move in circles like, you know, in the AEI circles, I talk to students at at Columbia and NYU and Ivy League schools and and this whole panoply, this this 
uh, what, uh, what was once called in a previous BBC television documentary with Don Cupid, the sea of faith. It is a sea of faith out there. They are very interested in the paranormal. They're interested in things like exorcisms. They're interested in spiritual things. And if we are not prepared to think about and talk about the stuff, in addition to the ideas that generate culture, if we cannot marry those two things together, we are not going to look like a very attractive alternative to people who do. I talked yesterday about uh, Kolakowski's um, lecture on the devil's work in history. And so I encouraged us yesterday to think uh, very explicitly about what the people of God's role and witness is in culture, and not to be too cute by half, but instead to be Jesus freaks. If we are not willing to do that, I fear that we uh, will continue this uh, slide and this decline into relative obscurity in culture. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Some of you are thinking that um, that's hard to do. That's hard to ask of us when there's this growing sense that to say what Christians have always said and to contend for what Christians have always believed has now become so unfashionable to the point of being politically correct, to the point of being offensive. This is hard to be doing these two things at the same time. Well, I get it. And wah. The most impactful book I read this year, and I recommend it to all of you, I'm talking about all this crazy stuff today. They're never going to invite me back to Southeastern. Um, was a book called Everyday Saints by Father Tikkun, who was eyewitness to this tiny little uh, monastery, Orthodox monastery in Moscow at the height of Soviet power. And they managed by hook and by crook to keep operating despite immense pressure to shut them down. And what kept them going was the undeniability of these miracles that happened in their midst. There was an orb of protection around this seminary. And the book is that thick. I'm not kidding. Read it. It'll encourage you. It's, it's, it's a rip-roaring read. Somebody needs to do a film about it. And what's funny is, and I've mentioned this in other lectures that I've given to you before, but let's stop playing against type. I'm in New York, and people expect New York, you know, 
um, Christians to sort of be the, you know, kind of the or- urbane, you know, C.S. Lewis, very esoteric and intellectual. But what I find is that people like Vatimo and other contemporary theorists like Slavoj Žižek, the apoplectic Slovenian philosopher, and Infant Tarib, who's been called the Elvis of cultural theory, they actually need us to be us in order to be them. Think about that. When you don't have antithesis, as Hegel said, when you don't have the juxtaposition of the darkness and the light, of good versus evil, against relativism versus orthodoxy, that's actually a very bad place for a culture to be in because that's how totalitarianism takes over. When you do not have that give and take of ideas. And so someone like Zizek's, one of his favorite authors is our G.K. Chesterton and J.R.R. Tolkien. Listen to what um, Zizek says in his book, The Puppet and the Dwarf, about Chesterton's writing on traditional marriage. The subversive sting, he says, of Chesterton's work is contained in the, here's some philosophical gobbledygook, the endless variation of one and the same matrix of the Hegelian paradoxical self-negating reversal. So, for example, what if in our postmodern world of ordained transgression, in which the marital commitment is perceived to be ridiculously out of date, those who actually cling to it are the true subversives? What if today straight marriage is the most dark and daring of all transgressions? Slavoj Žižek. Listen to this. In the very last pages of Orthodoxy, Chesterton deploys the fundamental Hegelian paradox of the pseudo-revolutionary critics of religion. They start by denouncing religion as the force of oppression that threatens human freedom. In so doing, Zizek says, they are sacrificing precisely what they wanted to defend. The ultimate victim, listen to this, the ultimate victim of the atheist theoretical and practical rejection of religion is not religion, which as Chesterton reminds us, unperturbed continues its life. But the real victim is freedom itself, allegedly threatened by it. The atheist radical universe, he says, deprived of religious Reference is the gray universe of egalitarian terror and tyranny. That was 20th century communism. And Zizek, as a dissident from a former Eastern Bloc country, understands that's where we are going back to. He wants Chesterton around. He later goes on, and talks about the fact that only someone like a J.R.R. Tolkien, a very dedicated Catholic, could have possibly come up with the pagan universe of Middle Earth. 
because only the Christian imagination can generate these other worlds that are born out of that font of enchantment, as Charles Taylor says. So where does that leave us, and what do we do? What must we accept now as our fate? I would like to discourage you and encourage you from the work of Hannah Arendt and her very prescient work that I think we all should be reading right now called The Jew as Pariah. Now, hold on a second. I do not want to suggest for one millisecond that what we are facing is anything like what the Jewish people have faced for millennia, okay? I don't want to trivialize their suffering by comparing ourselves to them, but we can learn from their witness preeminently. And in the Jew as pariah, Hannah Arendt talks about the amazing blessing and all of the cultural output and all of the advancements in science and all of the flourishing that has resulted from the Jewish people, although no one ever, ever, ever gives them credit for it. And she says it's okay. There are basically two ways to go, Hannah Arendt says. There is the way of the parvenu. The parvenu is the Jewish person who says, I am going to, I am going to step away from ethnic Jewishness. I am going to not be an Orthodox Jew. I'm going to be a Reformed Jew or uh, an atheist Jew. I'm going to try to look as much like the world as possible. Funny thing is, that those are the people who are least likely to be the kind of cultural ballast that our society needs. The other option is to be what Arendt calls a pariah. And there's two kinds. There is the unwitting pariah, someone who just is, is uh, oppressed by the world, and downtrodden. Uh, did any of you see the film Inside Lewin Davis by the Cohen brothers? He is what uh, is called in Jewish culture a shlemiel. For those of you that remember uh, uh, Laverne and Shirley, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Join in. Shlemiel. Shlemazo. Hasav. Okay, all right, all right. We remember, we, Yiddish, right? The Shlemiel is the hapless artist who is the victim of the world around him. It has tons of talent, but just can't seem to catch a break. Yeah. Oh, oh gosh. Uh, Dr. Aiken was stirring the pot back there. <clears throat> um, and the alternative is to be what Arendt calls a conscious pariah. To lean into the fact that we are outsiders. To embrace the fact that we are the freaks. 
that we're not cool, that we're not accepted. There's something about that antithesis that makes you work harder. That's what we need to be teaching this generation. As I said yesterday, as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And Arendt gives the illustration of um, a very peculiar example in this regard, a poet named Heinrich Heine, who actually was a convert to Christianity. She got into a lot of trouble for using this as her illustration, a Jew who converts to Christianity. Heine was a schlemiel. His poetry was banned. His works were, he, uh, were disregarded. He was considered an outcast in the literary community. And he wrote this poem called Princess Sabbath. He likens the Jews to a prince or a princess who by some means of witchcraft have during weekdays, been turned into a dog, a mangy dog who is forced to prowl around on the streets and scrap for its survival. But on the eve of Sabbath, he transforms back from the canine position into his full height as the prince of Israel. And he puts on the regal robes of his people and according to Heine, goes forth like a prince to welcome his Sabbath bride. That is the church. And that's what we and you at Southeastern Seminary have to be preparing for the generation that is going to come that will seek refuge. There is a new film out by the uh, idiosyncratic Werner Herzog. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. This is, I'm a big Werner Herzog fan. And in this connection, and this is where I would like to close today, um, I'm reminded of a story from Werner Herzog's own personal biography. He had learned that one of his very best friends was on her deathbed, about to die. And for whatever reason he got the intuition that instead of taking a flight to see her or uh, renting, renting a car to drive as fast as he could, he felt like she would stay alive long enough for him to go on a pilgrimage to her. So he bought the best pair of boots, probably thousand-mile wolverines that he could find, packed a duffel bag, grabbed a compass, and set out on foot to go visit his friend who he thought was dying. He's a cinematographer and a filmmaker. He barely made it. When he arrived, she was still alive. 
And the irony was that his journey, in his journey, at the end, he himself wound up being in worse shape than she was. And she wound up taking care of him. That is the church. Everywhere we go, people are saying the sky's falling, chicken little theology, the decline of religion in America. And the truth is that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's bride. And that our job is to realize that people who think their job it is to save the bride are doing no such thing. We all are pilgrimers, travelers, and refugees who need to find the celestial city of the church. Embattled, yes, in places weak, but loved by Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, as we close this hour, we give you thanks that the church visible is indistinguishable from the church triumphant. That through the many impossible persecutions of the past, we are living in an age of immense opportunity for the life of the world and the witness of the ancient ones who have come before us on whose shoulders we stand. So be with us, we pray. Be with these whose job it is to be under-shepherds, caretakers, missionaries, and evangelists for the good news of Jesus, who not only brings light into the world, but enlightens the whole world. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.